Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, December the 13th, 2022. It is currently 3.21 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, if you've been paying any attention to all of the live broadcasts and all of the podcast episodes that have been posted over the last few months, you know that we are in a very long series that we are calling Understanding Law and Gospel. In fact, we have done 39 episodes in this series, and that's a lot of episodes and a very short amount of time. But I believe, and I mean this sincerely, this is not hype, this is not hyperbole, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not, I know that's a little redundant, but I'm, I am being as honest and as fair, as level-headed as I can be about this. I believe this series on understanding law and gospel may be the most important series that we have ever done, that we have ever worked on, that we have ever considered, and that is saying a lot because I've done a lot of series and a lot of podcasts in what, 20 years plus, I have been, you know, sitting in front of microphones talking about so many different things. But understanding law and gospel, I believe, is one of the the great, the pr- a proper understanding of law and gospel is one of the greatest needs in the evangelical church today. I believe the gospel is being systematically written out of existence as far as the church is concerned and the minds of many Christian, and in the minds of many Christians. And I believe that I have even been guilty of doing some of the very same things in my Christian life and in my teaching, not handling this correctly. So I'm trying to do everything in my power to get everyone, even if you disagree, to stop and go, law and gospel. Have I, have I been understanding these correctly? Have I, have I had a proper distinction between law and gospel in my mind. And hopefully, um, okay, someone said that they very much enjoyed the series. Feels very important. Okay, good. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to hear that someone out there understands the what I'm trying to do because this is such, so important. And that I was, for those who are listening on other platforms, I was reading something that someone posted in the chat in the, uh, on the Spreaker app. So I do appreciate that. But I, I, I do believe that this is, I, so significant, so important, and I'm trying to do my very best to to help everyone understand that. If you are listening on other platforms, I would strongly suggest this. Please go to your, the uh, Google Play Store or the Apple App Store. Do a search for the Church One app. That's Church, O-N-E, Church, O-N-E, Church One. Download the app, do a search for Theology Central, choose us. That turns the Church One app, Church One app into the Theology Central app. Then look for series and look for the series Understanding Law and Gospel. And well, you have 39 plus hours of content to listen to, all right? 39 plus hours of content to listen to just in that series. I mean, we produce a lot of content, but please, at least if you don't listen to anything else, even by the time we're done with this series, maybe you come to the conclusion, he's completely wrong. I completely disagree. At least you had an opportunity to hear a perspective that you're not going to hear in many places because there's not often a lot of discussion about this very important subject. Transition. There's my transition statement, right? There's a lot of places where you will not hear about this. However, today 
I don't even know how I stumbled upon it, but I came across a recent podcast episode talking about law. They don't call it law and gospel. They call it law and grace. And according to the title, they're coming from this perspective. If we're, if you want godliness, if we're ever going to have godliness in our life, I don't know how they define that, but if we're ever going to have law, if we're ever going to have godliness, we need law and grace. Now, I don't know exactly which way they're going to go. I don't even know exactly what their perspective is. That always makes these reviews fun because I review things that I haven't listened to first. So we're just going to dive in. There's 47 minutes of content. We we know when I'm, I'm not going to be able to review all of that in one episode, but we will review a little bit and then we'll review maybe a little bit more later and then maybe we'll review a little bit tomorrow. We'll, we'll try to finish this by maybe Thursday. Uh, maybe Thursday we can, we can finish this review. It's going to take a long time. I have no idea what to expect. I have no idea. For those who've listened to the other 39 hours, this will be great. This will be great for you because you're going to have the opportunity in real time to go, wait, 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 wait. No, that's a completely different perspective. Wait, no, there's a pro-. You're going to be able to test everything you've learned about law and gospel and listening to someone else talk about it. And then you'll be able to go, wait, no, no. I mean, you, you, you probably already do with, do that with me, whether you agree or disagree with me, but now we can listen to someone. Maybe you're going to agree with them and disagree with my perspective, but this should be fun. It should be, hopefully, educational, informative, edifying, spiritually beneficial. Hopefully, it's something. But we're not going to waste any more time. Here we go. To add to our 39 episodes on understanding law and gospel, we now are going to take a little detour for the next couple of days. And we are going to consider, this is very important, law and grace as it relates to godliness in your life and in my life. I'm very intrigued by this. Here we go. We begin now. On today's episode, you'll hear a conversation between Mike Kruger and Jen Wilkin. This message was originally recorded at TGC's 2021 National Conference. So this is from uh, the uh, TGC, which is the Gospel Coalition, the Gospel Coalition Conference from 2021, and they, they talked about this, all right? So, so here we go. That gives you a little bit of TGC 2021 conference. Here we go. Well, welcome and good afternoon. Great to see all of you here. Uh, welcome to this session here. The title is, Does Grace Oppose Hard Work? A Conversation About Legalism, Moralism, and the Gospel. And I'm joined by my friend Jen Wilkin here, who... That's interesting. The title they gave it in the conference is different than the title they use for the podcast. For the podcast, it's godliness, law, and grace, that you need law and grace. And here's something about legalism and grace and hard work. So I don't know if this is going to go the direction I thought it was going to go, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. That, that's, that, that makes me worried. Like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Don't change the title on me now. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this review because of the title you gave the podcast episode. We'll back this up just a little bit. We'll back it up just a little bit. All right, here we go. Here we go. Well, welcome and good afternoon. Great to see all of you here. Uh, welcome to this session here. The title is, Does Grace Oppose Hard Work? A Conversation About Legalism 
moralism, and the gospel. And I'm joined by my friend Jen Wilkin here, who really needs no introduction in this circle of people, but you know her as an author, speaker, writer, and on the staff of the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. And my name is Mike Kruger. I'm the president of Reformed Theological Seminary. And Jen, I just got to start by saying how excited I am to do this. We, we have a backstory here. We're going to share in a moment how we got here, but I'm just thrilled to finally have a chance to have this conversation and on this topic today. I feel the same way. I feel like we've waited a long time to do this. Yeah, this is this has been something that's been brewing in our own thinking and minds for a long time, really dating back to 2014. Um, and ever since, we sort of see each other at conferences and pick up a little of the conversation. And then someone had the crazy idea this year to do this session. I don't even know who, who whose idea this was. Was this your idea? I what? think it was. Was it my idea? I can't remember. <laughs> this is the story of my life right now. I don't remember what I, what I say, long. what I teach, and what I come up with. But either way, um, this is a topic on legalism and moralism and the gospel and how they interface together. And it began with us in 2014 with an article that Jen wrote, I think it was on the Gospel Coalition, if I'm not mistaken, so that's fitting for this conference. And I love the title of this article, Jen, Failure is Not a Virtue. Tell us about that article because that's where this conversation really began. My eye might twitch if I start trying to talk about it because at the time that I wrote that, I was writing on my own blog. And what would happen is someone at TGC would email me and say, hey, we saw what you wrote. Can we put it on our website? And the first time that happened, I had to Google what TGC was. I had never even heard of it. And uh, and then I saw that my pastor's name was on there. So I'm like, okay, well, they're probably not kooks. And then um, they would run something and, you know, you never knew how it was going to go. Usually it meant every first year seminary student was going to troll me in the comments because they still had the comments open at that time, which was truly horrible. So I wrote this piece because of something that I... Stop right there. So, now this is so important. First of all, every first-year seminary student would troll you. Oh, there's nothing worse than the first-year seminary student. There, there really isn't. There's nothing worse than a second-year seminary student. There's nothing worse than a third-year seminary student. There's nothing worse than a fourth-year seminary student. And there's nothing worse than a recently a recent graduate from seminary because they have a tendency to think they know everything. They learn kind of a system of theology, and they're re- ready to willing now. They, they've got their water gun, and they're ready to rush the gates of hell, telling everyone that they're wrong because they've got it figured out, not realizing that all they were handed was a system of theology, right? They didn't necessarily learn scripture. They just learned a system. And now that, that they are now adherents, they're advocates. They are, they are now on team, whatever theology. Oh yeah. It, it's so maddening, but I want you to hear that. It's so important. And I don't even know she intended to do this. But if we're going to talk about law, we're going to talk about grace, we're going to talk about godliness, we're going to talk about legalism, and we're going to talk about all of this, I want you to hear this. The comment section on a Christian website, comment section, Christian website. Now, most of the time, those reading a Christian website for the most part, are going to be professing believers. Typically, lost people aren't going to go, I'm going to go read the blog section of the Gospel Coalition. Most of the time, they're not there. So they're going to be at least professing Christians. In her case, she identified them as first-year seminary students, clearly professing Christians. And how did she describe it? Horrific. Horrible. If you've ever had to deal with Christians in comment sections, or on social media, 
you see how horrible it can be. And ladies and gentlemen, why is it so horrible? Because I don't care what you claim happens to someone when they become a Christian. The one thing that remains is a sinful, depraved, wicked heart. A sinful nature is evident and it shows itself in how they behave on social media and how they behave on the internet. Someone falls into sin, they gossip, they slander, they condemn, and they they will destroy, they attack, they call people names. It's wicked, it's vile, it's ungodly, and it demonstrates when we talk about law and gospel, why we, that why the law only condemns us and our only hope is an imputed righteousness. And you can't judge that imputed righteousness based on what we do or don't do because it's imputed. We're not infused with a righteousness. We are ungodly. And Christians demonstrate it all the time. Just, just let them comment on any. If you're a Christian website, just leave your comment section open and typically you'll see Man, Christians are messed up human beings. And you know what? It's absolutely true. But I just think that's fascinating. I don't know if she intended to do that, but she just talked about how bad the comment section is on a Christian website. I was actually seeing in in mothering circles, like I was seeing a lot of advice to young moms, et cetera, saying, you know, hey, girl, you're just going to fail. And you're just, every, every, you can, you're, everything you do is going to fail, but there is grace for you. There is just grace for you. And um, there were some pieces that were written about, like, Jesus just wants you to rest. And um, I was like, man, I feel like this is bubbling up a lot. So. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is going, okay, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose this. So on one hand, hey, this Chris, the comment section in this Christian website is just, it was horrific. But I started seeing that all over Christianity, they just kept saying, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. But there's grace. And she doesn't like that. Because, because and the name of her article, this again, I think says, go back to 2014. Failure is not a virtue. Right. So she doesn't like that there. It seems like that where this seems to be going. On one hand, she just talked about how bad the, the comment section is on a Christian website, but she doesn't want anyone to perceive their failure is a virtue. No, 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 no. It's not a virtue to fail. So so what is she getting ready to say? We don't have to fail. We have the power not to fail. We can be. Per- where is this going Where is this going? But here's the reality, and I know Christians don't like to hear this, and they perceive that you're preaching some kind of weak Christianity. The reality is people are sinning around the clock 24-7. I don't know why Christians get in there. They they get in this weird idea that, no, 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 no. Sin is this big stuff. All of these little things. Oh, I don't love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. That's okay. That's okay. I don't love my neighbors and myself. That's okay. He tells me to be holy as he is holy. That's okay. No, 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 no. Hey, hey, guys, 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 don't act like that. Everyone's just going to make mistakes. Stop acting like no one is perfect. Well, what are you saying? Oh, you're going to say certain sins we shouldn't fail. Certain sins should not be there. Well, there's always going to be some sin. So how do you bring that into your theology? Let's see where she's going to take this. Um, I had written this piece. TGC picks it up. Well, unbeknownst to me, there was a much larger conversation going out there about this. And you're, yeah, and that's where my eye starts to twitch because they put it on the site and it exploded. No, that's exactly right. This article, and I'm going to come back to a phrase you use in the article in a moment, which I think is fascinating. This article pushed back against this idea that all you can do is fail yeah. in keeping the law, yeah. and the only thing you can really do is just admit you failed, 
know you're going to fail again, go to the cross, and then repent and just let the cycle repeat. Oh, boy. She didn't like this idea that all we're going to do is fail, that all we're going to do is fail in keeping the law. That is a, we, oh boy, oh man, oh man. Okay, this is getting ready. I think this is going to go completely against everything I have taught in the 39 hours on this subject of law and gospel. What, I guess she's going to push back. No, 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 no. We don't need this mindset that all we're going to do is fail. We don't need this mindset that all we're going to do is break the law. Oh, we cannot keep the law. We cannot. Let me, let me make it very clear. If I break one part of the law, I'm guilty of all of it. I'm never going to keep the law. I'm always going to be guilty of it. Jesus' summary of the law, we are good, we're in a perpetual state of disobedience. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. She has never done that. I have never done that. No one has ever done that. Love your neighbor as yourself. No one has ever done that. So immediately we're guilty of the whole law. The whole law is summed up in those two things. Mm, 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 I'm, we're four minutes into this and I'm already having, I think I'm, I'm already, I'm breaking out and hives and I, I need blood pressure medication. I'm starting to sweat. Okay. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. All right, deep breath. Okay, deep breath. Here we go. <sighs> Here we go. And there was no real, no real conversation in, in these circles about how God empowers us by his spirit to obey the law mm-hmm. or how the law is a positive guide. Oh. Oh, my goodness gracious. So we, So their view is that the Spirit of God empowers us to keep the law, meaning every Christian can keep the law. And they literally said that with a straight face. There was no discussion about how the Spirit empowers us to keep the law. Are you out of your mind? Man, okay, I I got to take a second here. I got to take a second here. I really have to think this through. I really have to think this through. I, there's just no way you can believe that. There's no way you can believe that we can keep the law. The Bible is, is, is just, all it demonstrates is that we don't keep the law. That's all it demonstrates. Adam and Eve did not keep the very simple law they had. No one after the fall obviously has ever kept the law. Sin, 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 sin. Even the Apostle Paul's like the things I don't want to do, I do. The things that I, things I want to do, I don't do. With my mind, I serve the law of God, God, but with my body, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. That just completely gets obliterated and ignored. And so we, we have this idea that we, like... Okay. And and I'm really pausing and I'm really struggling here. Because in some ways, I want to believe. I want to believe that they're right. Like, I want to believe that they're right. But this, this reminds me of my arguments with charismatics. This is really, I'm starting to frame this more in my arguments with charismatics. I cannot, I, I don't understand a charis, I don't understand charismatics. Because to me, it sounds like, it's like something delusional, something, I, I don't know, something is wrong in their brains because I don't understand it. You walk around telling everyone healing 
is guaranteed in the atonement for right here, right now. It is God's will to heal. You can be healed. You believe and you will be healed of any disease. They claim that. Yet, sickness and death, sickness and death, sickness and death, sickness and death, sickness and death. I've yet to see them even attempt or even pretend they can bring back a missing arm or a missing leg from military people coming back from Afghanistan or Iraq, especially obviously when we were there and, and all the times I was in the military, I, I worked with charismatics. I'm like, hey, hey, go downstairs. Come on. There's some people, there's people who've lost an arm and a leg and Iraq, go, go, come on, go heal them. You can't do it. Hey, someone just died and their body's in the morgue. Go raise them from the dead. You can't do it. The reason this hospital is here is because you charismatics can't do one thing you claim you can do. You're liars. Okay, well, that reality disproves their claim. Now, there's Christians who literally believe that we have the spirit so we can obey the law. But now, and, and listen, the minute you say you have the spirit so you can obey the law, I, you cannot backtrack that five seconds later. You just made the statement that now by God's spirit, I can keep the law. You've just made the confession that spiritual perfection, that we can be perfect, is not only possible, it is probable. Oh, this is... Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. All right. All right. Let's see where they go with this. I'm, 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 I'm trying to be... I'm really struggling. I, I want you to understand this. When I hear this, like I listen to the people and I, and I want it. Like, it's just like when I first learned about charismatic theology, I wanted it to be true. I wanted it to be true because I knew people who were sick and people who had diseases and, and I wanted people to be healed. And I wanted, I wanted kids to be released from the cancer ward. I wanted it to be true. But at some point you realize this is garbage. Well, I so want it to be true that I now have the power to obey every single law of God because I would stop sinning now. Mm. All right, let's continue. In the Christian life. And so when I read this article by Jen, I thought, this is really insightful. This is really useful. And then, like you said, it's like someone dropped a match into mm -hmm. the whole conversation about law, grace, and the gospel. And someone had wrote a rebuttal to you um, that came to my attention. And I read the rebuttal and I thought, this was t entirely unfair to what you had written. And so I wrote on my blog a defense of her blog. Um, and then my website blew up. In yeah. fact, you'll, you'll laugh at this, Jen. Last night, just for old time's sake, um, I went on my blog and I thought, I wonder how many comments I have on you my blog. You kept article. the comments out there? Oh, I, I, it, it still has the comments out there. So for those of you who are curious, you can go after don't, this. Don't do it now. Don't do it. I can see you taking your phones out. Don't do it now. Never read the comments. Uh, yes. Go, you can go on my website and dig up uh, the article and uh, there's page after page after page. I mean, it went on forever. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized, wow, this touched a nerve. And again, she, I know she doesn't realize what she's doing, but she's talking about how bad, never read the comments, how bad, why? 
All the people commenting are professing Christians. Oh, oh, everyone who doesn't do it the right way, what, they're not using the power? I mean, why wouldn't the Christian comment section be the best comment section in the history of mankind, right? Why wouldn't it be the best comment section in the history of mankind? Because all the people commenting have the power of God to keep the law. So they're going to show love. They're going to show compassion. It's going to be one. They're going to show patience. They're going to show long suffering. Why? Why? Oh, oh, I know, I know. Because then, of course, anyone who doesn't live up to what you perceive to be the standard, which I guess is keeping the law, is not saved. Because every Christian can keep the law perfectly. But why do we see so little of it? Well, your only answer then is people aren't saved. But I mean, in a roundabout way, she's disproving her premise. Now, she's not stated her premise clearly, but she's clearly giving evidence that wherever you find Christians, you find sin, you find failure, you find arrogance, you find pride, you find unkindness, you find a lack of grace, you find a lack of compassion. Wherever you find Christians, you see depravity. It is always present. It is always there. That's reality. It did. Now, at the point that your website blew up, I was hunkered down in a room making my husband check to see what was going on out there because I'm like, I cannot look. I don't know what just happened. And it meant so much to me that you spoke up. And you were not the only one who spoke up, but uh, I just, I didn't expect that. And it was so kind. And it gave me courage to continue thinking about this and thinking about how it might be important for the church. And I think then you and I have enjoyed a lot of years of sort of dialogue around this. Thankfully, I actually really like your wife. So even if you were intolerable, she's yes. great to spend time with. Well, that's actually what most people say. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, mm-hmm. I'm saved by my wife most of the time. Um, <laughs> she is the better half for sure. So you use a, a word, Jen, in that article called, help me here, celebratory failureism. Yeah, because there's nothing like name calling when you want to make a point. Um, yeah, I was really just trying to kind of capture what was going on with with what I was seeing, and it was just. Oh, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Now, I was just going with okay. Someone, someone in the comment section just made a very uh, interesting point, and I had not thought about this. My brain was going. She's talking about how horrible it is. You have to be a masochist to even read this. How horrible. Maybe the people weren't being mean. Maybe the people were just showing her that, hey, you're wrong. And she ta- is taking it of how horrible it was. Now, I-, I would argue probably just from what I've always seen, it's probably pretty bad, but you could be right. It could be that she was just so upset and he was so upset that everyone was like, this is complete garbage. Okay, may- maybe that that's a very good point. So we can't make a definitive judgment based off the comment section, but I was just listening to her saying, you have to be a masochist. It's horrible. It's bad. And just because I've seen how horrible it can be, but I I will say this, wherever I find Christian comments, it's usually horrible and bad. I mean, I'll just, I could just show you emails I've gotten, you know, I've I've received, you know, death threats from Bible, you know, perceived professing Christians because they disagreed with something I said. So, but, uh, that, that's a very good point. All right. I'm opening up my, um, iPad so that I don't miss any comments. All right, here we go. Let's, let's, so let's see what she's going to say. Celebratory uh, failureism, I think is the, is the term that she coined. Celebratory, celebratory favorite, or celebratory 
failureism. And it's the idea that within some evangelical circles, she's bothered that they seem to celebrate failure. They seem to celebrate it and we shouldn't celebrate it. And according to his comments, if we put it together, why would you celebrate your failure when you have the power to never fail, which would mean you have the power to be perfect. So don't celebrate your failures. No, no, because you shouldn't fail. You shouldn't fail. Just that it was actually something to be glad about when you could not obey the law because it meant that grace was magnified that much more. And I do think that the way that this conversation hits people, like I know why people love and value the message of grace so highly. It's usually because they either came out of legalism and it burned them or they came out of license and they have so much residual shame around the way that they lived in the past. And so I don't look at this in a way that is removed from the pastoral elements of the conversation. But at the same time, it was alarming to me that specifically in the centers that call themselves gospel-centered, something was missing. Like obedience had become a bad word. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, when in the Christian life, if you try to obey God's law, you're considered a legalist. Mm Um, if you strive towards holiness, you're labeled someone who doesn't understand grace. Mm-hmm. And we thought ourselves, well, this doesn't sound right because Paul is very concerned with holiness, even mm-hmm. though he was the champion of justification. Mm-hmm. So there seemed to be a confusing here of the a confusion here between justification and sanctification yeah. um, that I think needed to be uh, spoken about. And you know, just to be clear, and I think this audience would know this, both Jen and I, of course, love the doctrine of justification and whole, wholeheartedly, obviously, embrace. Mm-hmm justification uh, by faith alone on the finished work of Christ alone and his imputed righteousness to us Mm -hmm. so that there is no law keeping that can meritoriously earn our salvation, of course. But does that mean that we're not supposed to try to keep the law? Okay. Now uh, we got, we got to watch how they, how they phrase this. Okay. Does that mean we shouldn't try to keep the law? Here's the question. Can we keep the law to any level? Because remember, if I break one point, I'm guilty of all of it. So at what level can I keep the law? That's the real question. At what level? You're, they're bothered because people are running around going, well, we're going to fail. We're going to fail. And they're, they're like, no, 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 no. You're missing something. We, we've got we to get to law keeping. We, well, but wait a minute. Can you keep it? Can you keep it? Make a list of the law. You can say, well, I can keep that one. I can keep that one. Okay, but are you a law keeper when you're breaking 15 others? It's, it's great to say, I, it's almost like, hey, Lord, what must I do to have eternal life? Well, keep the law. Well, I've kept all of them since I was young. Oh, have you? Have you? Have you kept the whole, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Well, well I can't do that. Okay, well, then you don't love your neighbor as yourself. And because I'm God and I just told you to do it, you don't love me with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. So you failed in both parts of the law. You're guilty. So can you keep the law or not? The the issue isn't a pursuit of it. The issue isn't the pursuit of it and wanting to keep it and a desire to keep it because I believe we want to keep it. The point is what we want to do, we don't do. And the things we don't want to do, we do because that's the reality of our life. We cannot keep it. 
And you've got to be very careful. If you believe justification is by an imputed righteousness, well, then you're saying it's imputed, but then we're giving the power to keep it. No, we're giving, we're given an imputed righteousness because we can't keep it. Jesus didn't come to say, hey guys, I'm going to make you now able to keep what no one has been able to keep. No, he's like, I'm going to save you because you can't keep it. And if you're not careful, you walk right back into Roman Catholicism and you turn justification into nothing more than an infused righteousness, which you have to cooperate with, which is literally anathema to the entire Reformation. Um, and here's where I think your article pushed back, helpfully, Jen, and said, hey, wait a second. There is a positive use of the law that we seem to have forgotten. Um, and that, that reminds me of this whole discussion of second versus third use of the law. Right. right. Um, and I don't know if you want to say something about that, because I, that, that, I think, is a missing category. Well, and I think if you're missing this category, what can happen is when you say we want to be gospel-centered, you're, you've reduced the gospel to a call to repentance and justification. Yeah. And it is... It is true that, well, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to riff on a John MacArthur comment here, but that our justification does, in fact, cost us nothing, but our sanctification will cost us everything. Uh, and I think that's a mess, and that's, that's actually good news. Like, sanctification is every bit as good of news as justification is, and yet it felt like our emphasis was increasingly on justification as the gospel. It is such good news that I don't have to... Now, this is important. This is a very important, very important theological distinction. Oh, this should spark great conversation in my email, Discord, everywhere. Okay, this is important. When we speak of the gospel... And we, we've talked about this, a proper understanding of law and gospel. We've referred to the gospel as of what Christ has done for us. Now, if you say the gospel includes both justification, what God has done for us, sanctification, which is, of course, she quoted MacArthur, it's going to cost me everything, then that doesn't seem to be, now the gospel has a what God did for me part, but it also has what I must do part. So then the gospel includes what God does and what I do. So does the gospel include sanctification? Or does the gospel only include justification? If you say the gospel includes sanctification, well, then are you saying the sanctification, then are you going with a monergistic sanctification and God does it all? And if God does all of the work of sanctification, then when someone isn't sanctified or someone doesn't seem to show it, you can't condemn them because it's God's fault. Is sanctification gospel or is sanctification law? Now, it depends on how we understand this. So let's, let's remember this. In Christ, in the gospel, I am justified by him. It's his work, completely by him, his work, death, his burial, resurrection, ascension, his righteousness being imputed to my account. Justification is a work of God. There is an aspect, though, in Christ Jesus right? There is a gospel sanctification element, which I completely agree with. In Christ, I am sanctified. Past tense, it is done. I have been set apart to God in the gospel. In election, he set me apart from everyone else. In effectual calling, he set me apart from everyone else. In, uh, in imputed righteousness, he set me apart. There is a gospel element of sanctification. That is what has been done. It is done. It is complete. 
There is a there is a salvation or a justification element of sanctification that occurs in salvation. There is an eternal sanctification where I will be set apart for all eternity to God. The the eternal part and the salvation part, justification part, that sanctification is all the work of God. It is done. Well, the one is already done. It's complete. The other one is a certainty, but it will occur in the future. So I do believe in Christ Jesus, I am sanctified, perfectly sanctified. In Christ Jesus, I am set apart from sin. I'm set apart from the world. I am set apart for God. That he did it. He accomplished it. It, it. it is true of my position. Now, what we're talking about is the what we'll call the progressive sanctification that occurs in life. Now, now here's the key. Either, either you say that that is a gospel sanctification, meaning that it's completely the work of God. And so you have to make it completely monergistic. I play no part in it. I don't do anything. God does it all. Now, if you believe that, you take it to its logical conclusion, you can't condemn someone who's missing sanctification in their life because it's, it's God's fault. Now, what we typically do, the way we get around that is, well, God does sanctification. I don't see enough in your life, so clearly you're not saved. So so in many cases, this just becomes a weapon in which you can start telling who is and isn't in the kingdom of God because you get to determine that there's not enough sanctification in their life. That is, that is problematic and, and dangerous. But if you make sanctification not monergistic, you make it synergistic, the work of two, clearly then it's not God, it's not a part of the gospel. This is then works-based. It's law-based. So what, how do I view my sanctification? Law or gospel? Well, there is a sanctification. I have been sanctified. That's all gospel. I will be sanctified. That's all gospel. But in life... It's a law. I think what should motivate the progressive sanctification is the gospel. Based off what Christ has done for me, I should be motivated to present myself as a living sacrifice. I should be motivated to die to self, but it's still, I'm a part of it. It's still a works, struggle, failure, law. I, so I, I, when they, when she wants, they want to add it to, the gospel, I get nervous because you're, if you're not careful, you're going to say the gospel includes what Christ has done for us and the gospel includes what we do for God. And that would be problematic. Stay the way that I was when I came to faith. And if you have seen any um, sanctification take place in your own life since the point of your justification, you can say amen to that. You can look back on how you used to be. Now, granted, you continue to understand with a deeper sense how your sin has impacted you. And so you increasingly are aware of your sin at the same time that you might. Okay, here's here's the little, uh, you know, bait and switch game that Christians play. Hey, 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 listen, 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 listen. Now, make sure you understand this. If you've been saved, you will see sanctification in your life. You're going to see how you're supposedly so different now, but, but, but you're still going to see your sin and you're going to become more aware of your sin and you're going to become, wait a minute. So have I been changed or am I being changed? And if I'm being changed, how much am I being changed? And why do I continue to see sin? Because you've already insinuated that now I have the power to keep the law. So do I have the power to keep the law? And if I have the power, why do I stop not, why do I continue to fail so much? And I guarantee you for every area where you can say, look at all the change that took place in my life. 
I can find 50 other areas where you're, you're, you, you may actually have been getting worse. I think we change the sins we commit. I think, I think we, we put off some sins, but we put on different sins. Might be um, moving away from old sin patterns, but it is important for us to acknowledge that the hope of the gospel in our sanctification is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And how does that conforming happen? It happens when we examine the role of the law in the life of the believer. Okay, so he, so here we go. Yes, we uh, that promise in Romans eight about being conformed to the image. It's a gospel promise. It will happen. And will will it happen? In my glorification. In my glorification, I will be conformed. He said, well, you're being conformed now. Again, you can say that that is occurring and I won't argue that it's happening, but how is it happening? That's not a part of the gospel, right? In the sense that when we say gospel, we're referring to what God has done for us, unless you're saying that being conformed is what God is doing for you. And if you make it all the work of God, well, then any lack of being conformed to his image is not my fault. It's God's fault. So you, you got to figure out all of these categories. Like, how do you work this? No, sanctification, it is gospel. Okay, so God does it. All right, so God does it all. All right, so then I can't be blamed for any lack of sanctification in my life because any lack of sanctification in my life is, is, is God's fault. Well, no, because if you don't have enough sanctification, then you prove you were never saved in the first place. So, so God, God gets completely off the hook, right? So, if I, it, so please note how this works. God does the sanctifying, but he doesn't do it perfectly. <laughs> hey, hey, God is the one who sanctifies you, but it's not going to be perfect until glorification. Why can't he get it to perfection? But if I don't have enough of it, it's no longer God, then it's me, and then I'm not saved. So, the, the, like, so is it, is it the work of God or is it the work of me? And does sanctification occur as the gospel? In other words, God is doing it. Or is sanctification not gospel-based, but in a sense it's law-based because now it's me looking to the law and then attempting to obey it and then working in my life fighting against sin and struggling and failing. And, 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 and so, so how exactly does this work? So the second use of the law, right, is this issue of justification. It points out our need for salvation. Christ is the only one who fulfills the law perfectly. But then it was that third use of the law that we really needed to kind of return to. Do you want to talk about that one? Yeah, so most of you are familiar with the theological categories of different uses of the moral law. Theologians have historically distinguished between what we call second use and third use. Of course, there's a first use. I'm not going to talk about that today. But the second use of the law is the one that we typically talk about in relation to justification. And that is the law condemns it. It traps you, it, 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 it cannot justify you, and, and the thing it serves to do is expose how deep a sinner you really are. Why? So you'll flee to Christ for forgiveness. But that's not all that can be said about what Jesus has done, because there's also the third use of the moral law. The third use of the moral law is that, yes, the law exposes our sin and drives us to Christ, but it's also a positive guide in our life uh, to holiness. The law is something we should love, it's something we should follow, it's something that we should embrace in other words, I tell my students all the time in seminary, if, if you don't love God's law, you're not going to love God because the law reflects his character. The, the law is a reflection of who God is. So if someone says, I'm anti-law, I'm like, well, then you're not a follower of Christ because Christ was not anti-law. Christ wrote the law. It's his own words. And, it... and see, I love that. Well, I'm anti-law. Well, you're not saved. 
Did you know salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and not be anti-law? Did you not, did you not see that in the salvation message? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be anti-law. Because if you're anti-law, you're not saved. Now, I understand that we shouldn't be anti-law. I understand that we should pursue it. I understand that we should love it. I do understand. I, I understand that I should love God. But sometimes I don't know if I love God. Sometimes I think I may hate God. And you can be shocked by that. But sometimes you struggle with the same thing. Sometimes I am appreciative of God. And sometimes I'm confused and bothered, bewildered, and upset and bitter towards God. And the same is true of you. Because I know what's inside of you is the same thing inside of me is a sin nature. So the issue isn't, should we love it? The issue isn't, isn't, should we pursue it? The issue is, can we keep it? And the law, we can never keep. The law before we're saved and after we save has still the main function. It may serve as a guide, but guess what? That guide will show you over and over and over. It's going to lead you down a path and it's going to lead you to the path of failure, shortcoming, falling short, transgressing. You fall short over and 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 over again, which leads you right back to the gospel. You get to the gospel, you are filled with gratitude and love and appreciation appreciation that there is forgiveness, which hopefully motivates you to continue your pursuit of trying to obey everything that you can, even though you're going to fall short. So the issue isn't, can we use the law for this? We can, and we, sh- we, we can, and we should. We should use the law. We should pursue the law in the sense of doing everything we can. But, the, but th- that's not even the issue. The issue is, can you keep it? And if you say that you can, that we now have the power to do it, (laughs) you have to to believe in the eradication of the old nature and you have to thoroughly believe that sinless Christians is not only possible, it is probable. Reflects his own character. So there has to be some sense in which the law condemns us if we try to use it as a meritorious works righteousness but it's also a positive guide when we're looking at it from the perspective of someone who's been saved. And I think that's the distinction that was missing. Yeah, Jesus is both our Savior and our example, and we can acknowledge that. And I I think of it, too, like in just relational terms. Jesus is our example. You're right. He's an example of what we will never be. (laughs) I go, what do you mean by he's the example? Go live like him. Well, try and you're going to fall short. You're never going to love your enemies the way he loved his enemies. You're never going to do half the things he did. You're never going to do it. It's an example to show you what you can't do, what you will not do. So therefore you need what he did. And they're like, you know, no, no, no. It's, it's only an example of how much you fall short before you're saved. Now you're saved. He's an example of what you can be. He's an example of what you can do. Really? I can be what Jesus was? I can be as holy as Jesus? Well, no, you can't be that holy. Well, either I can or I can't. My husband, Jeff, has, this is, you're going to super want to be a part of my life after you hear this. He has recently, in the last several years, taken up birding. He's gotten really into birds, and he's often staring out the window at birds using different apparatus so that he can see birds and tell me about birds and let me know about the new bird that's in the yard and how there are birds here and there and everywhere there are birds. Birds are all over the place. And so I have actually developed 
a love for birds. Why? Because he loves birds. So I love birds because Jeff loves birds and I love Jeff. I love the law. Oh, how sweet. That, that works. That always works in marriage, doesn't it? You love something and because your spouse loves you, they love what you love. It doesn't work that way. Okay. It may have worked in your, oh, you're, you're everything I long to be, but I can't be like you because it doesn't typically, you know how many marriages struggle with this? Hey, they develop this. They love this. This is their hobby. There's their passion. I don't have the same love and uh, hobby and passion. So then you grow apart. And this is, this is, so like that's your, the example is you. And so, so, so now, now she's going to move this over to, to now how we should approach the law because in other words, God loves, the, I should love the law because God loves the law and I love God. So now I should just love the law, right? Is, is that, is that, is that where she's going? Because Jeff loves birds and I love Jeff. I love the law because Jesus loves the law and I love Jesus. So we should think about this really just in terms of how we even understand human relationships. We want to love the things that the person. I can love the law because it shows me my need for Jesus. I can love it because it reveals to me what I am and what I need. I can love it. But the point is, loving it doesn't mean I can keep it. Jesus came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill every jot and tittle of it. He fulfilled it all. Which is great news because in him, I fulfill all of it based off his imputed righteousness. The imputed active and passive obedience. That we love loves. And we know that he loves the law and delights in it. And so, so should we. Yeah, it makes me think of the Psalms, right? Psalm 1, you know, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the mm -hmm. Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Um, he, it doesn't say the man who loves the law of the Lord is a legalist. Yeah, but here's the thing. When you read Psalm 1, how come you're not like, well, wait a minute. I don't meditate on it day and night. Do you meditate on it day and night? Anyone who reads Psalm 1 should be like, woe is me. I don't meditate on it day and night. Woe is me. I, I, I am guilty of, oh, well, let's go through everything in Psalm 1. Oh man, this is driving me crazy. The way Christians just read these things and it's just this immediate like, I do this. I do it. Like, like there's just an immediate attitude that we do all of these things. Oh, it's just, it drives me crazy. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. I'm sure nobody there ever walks in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the, in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. The, as soon as you read those two verses, you should be like, woe is me. I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't, you don't do it. I don't do it. None of us, we fall short of it continually. So who does it? Who is the blessed man in Psalm 1? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did all of those things. In Christ, I do those things. Apart from Christ, I'm guilty of all of those things. And I will never put, if you, if you come to me telling me you meditate on God's word day and night, I'm sorry, we're going to have to talk about scriptures about lying. You don't do it. I don't do it, no matter how much I may want to. 
Mm-hmm. It says the one who loves the, loves the law of the Lord is the one who's going to have fruit in his life and so forth. And the implication, of course, isn't that he's using the law as a meritorious works righteousness to be right. earning God's favor. But because already redeemed by grace, now you look at the law differently. Now the law is no longer the enemy, but now your friend. And I think that's the, the key difference. Yeah. The enemy is my friend. Oh, my goodness. The law. When you say it's my friend, it, what do you mean by that? The law still condemns you. It's your friend in the sense that it led you to Christ, but it's still your enemy in the sense that you're still condemned by it. I read Psalm 1 and I'm like, you know, tear my shirt, you know, shave my head, throw uh, some sackcloth on, throw some ashes in the air and say, woe is me. But, uh, But other Christians read, isn't that a beautiful Psalm? Isn't that just so amazing? Yeah, that you're condemned by it. Uh, and the, you know, the second use of the law is always the one that's compared to a mirror, right? It's the diagnostic. And so then you, you go to James, the epistle of James, where he's actually saying, Hey, you know, you've looked in the mirror, but no one looks in the mirror and walks away and doesn't try to change. Like they want to be different after looking in the mirror. Well, that's actually not true of the unbeliever. The unbeliever wants to avoid the mirror, but those of us who have been, been made new in Christ we welcome what the mirror is showing us, even though it may be painful because we so much want to please the one who gave us the mirror in the first place. So it's a joyful obedience out of gratitude instead of a grudging obedience out of fear. Now, part of the issue that I want to diagnose with you for a second, Jen, is kind of how we got here. Um, And so one idea I have, and we can kick this around, is it seems like Many Christians today in the reform world think that the biggest enemy of the church is legalism. Yeah. Um, and forget perhaps that another enemy of the church is also antinomianism. And if you're convinced that the biggest enemy of the church is legalism, then you're going to love the second use of the law because that's a, a, a legalism killer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're concerned about antinomianism, you're going to love the third use of the law. Mm-hmm. So how did we get to the place where... Oh, I think, okay, wait. I think that's a good point. Let me go find that passage in James. Let me go that, uh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Because they just described that James passage. We got to find that passage here. Uh, Yes, James says, Okay, for if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholds himself, goeth his way, and straightward forgets what manner of man he was. Yeah, the, the idea is that the, the, this person just goes away and forgets what he saw. They, they, they seem to try to go in a completely different direction with that. Hmm. I almost want to back that up. I'm going I'm to back that up. I don't know if I can. Hopefully I don't mess myself up here. That's a good point. I don't know how far back we have to go. We have to go. We may have to go back a long way. So here we go. We'll go all the way back to um, hitting the microphone. I apologize. We have to go all the way back to 13 minutes here. Here we go. Yeah, and, the, you know, the second use of the law is all, it's the one that's compared to a mirror, right? It's the diagnostic. And so then you, you go to James, the epistle of James, where he's actually saying, hey, you know, you've looked in the mirror. But no one looks in the mirror and walks away and doesn't try to change. Like they want to be different after looking in the mirror. Well, that's actually not true of the unbeliever. The unbeliever wants to avoid the mirror. Yeah, the James' point is we look and forget what we saw. 
Yeah, I, I guess they think it. Yeah, that that's. That's interesting. Okay, we may have to circle back to that. We may have to circle back to that. It's just, I just think that they should have just quoted James because they, they almost changed the words of it, right? Hey, no one looks at it and just doesn't do anything. Look, you can look, here's the thing. You can look in the mirror of God's law 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At the end, guess what? What? You're still going to sin. You're still going to fall. You're still going to fail. You can look at it all day long because you're going to look in God's word, look in God's word. You're going to see what you are. You're going to see who God is and you're going to, and you can strive, you can desire, you can fight to do right, but you're going to sin continually. So that the issue is what do we have the ability to actually accomplish? They're getting very close to seemingly, and they've already stated it. That you can look in the mirror and then just change it all. You can just say, okay, God, I've got it. I've got my instructions for today. No more lust. Boom. I no longer lust. Love my neighbor. Got it. Love God. Do it. Meditate on his word day and night. Boom. I can do it. Well, how long does it take then for you to be perfect? But those of us who have been, been made new in Christ... We welcome what the mirror is showing us, even though it may be painful because we so much want to please the one who gave us the mirror in the first place. So it's a joyful obedience out of gratitude instead of a grudging obedience out of fear. Now, part of the issue that I want to diagnose with you for a second, Jen, is kind of how we got here. Um, And so one idea I have, and we can kick this around, is it seems like Many Christians today in the reform world think that the biggest enemy of the church is legalism. Yeah. Um, and forget perhaps that another enemy of the church is also antinomianism. And if you're convinced that the biggest enemy of the church is legalism, then you're going to love the second use of the law because that's a, a, a legalism killer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're concerned about antinomianism, you're going to love the third use of the law. Mm-hmm. So how did we get to the place where... Christians love to think that the main problem is always legalism, but kind of forget that the main problem could also be antinomianism. My theory is that I think we rightly love books. Okay, I'm I'm, going to go out on a limb here. I'm kind of sick and tired of people who go down this path always throwing out the antinomian card, right? They throw it out all the time, right? They throw it out. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you you preach the gospel correctly, you will be accused of antinomianism. In other words, you know you've preached the gospel when the phone rings and basically says, are you an antinomian? Okay, well, thank you, because I know I preached the gospel. Now, I had a weird situation where uh, I'm an antinomian, but then I don't preach the gospel all basically, and I, I don't understand how I can be an antinomian and not preach the gospel but but Martin Lloyd-Jones said, hey, no, if you preach the gospel, you're going to be accused of antinomian. But here's what I'm so sick and tired of. I'm sick and tired of the antinomian boogeyman. Because look, you go listen to sermons all day. And you know what you're going to hear in every sermon? Do this, 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 do this. 15 ways to be a better husband. 15 ways to be a better wife. 15 ways to be a better teenager. 15 ways to be better single. 15 ways to be spiritually pure. 15 ways to overcome anger. 15 ways to forgive your neighbor. 15 ways to forgive your enemy. 15 ways to turn the cheek. 15, do this, do this, do this. Every sermon is a list of things you're supposed to do. How
How in the world is antinomian flourishing when every sermon is law, 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 law? It's always do this, 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 do this. It's constant. I'm so tired of the antinomian boogeyman. Give me, show me sermons where they're like, don't do anything. Don't do anything. Don't obey anything. Don't try. Don't strive. Don't fight. Don't confess. Don't do anything. Christ did it all for you. There is no law. There is no rule. There's no instruction. Just do what you want. Yeah, so, so, so someone just said, if you if if I understand what an antinomian is, I don't think I actually know of any. Well, even if you, I I agree, I don't know of any because every all I hear in sermons is constantly do this, do this, do read your Bible more, have a quiet time, do this, do this, med, meditate on God's word, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's nonstop. It never ends. Every devotional, three steps to do this, two steps to do this, do that. I mean, it is not, we are given law continually, continually. We are bombarded in it. Here's what I would challenge you to do. I'll just give you one app. Just go to the Sermons 2.0 app, all right? And I challenge you to do this. You can start it tonight. You can start it tomorrow. And I would just challenge you to do this. Go to the Sermons 2.0 app. Download Sermons 2.0 app. All right. In fact, let me look at it in the app store, what it's actually called. Hang on. I really, I challenge anyone to do this. All right. One of our listeners right now who just commented is Heather. She could do this all day and make a chart for us just to prove whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong. It would be a cool looking chart. Okay. Let me look here. I'm just going to, wait, I got to go to the app store. Yeah. The whole antinomian boogeyman. I am so tired of hearing it. Okay. All right. I'm going to go sermons, sermons. And I know we're over an hour, but I don't care. Sermons 2.0. I'm just going to type in sermons 2.0. Yes, there it is. Just type or type in sermon audio 2.0. Sermon audio all run together. Sermon audio 2.0. Just download that app. Sermon audio 2.0. And I'm not, I'm not promoting this app just because we broadcast on that. We broadcast all, all over the place. So, but I'm, I'm promoting this because it's just so simple. Download the Sermons 2.0 app and just keep a lookout all day on the live feed. And every time someone is live, just listen, just listen and keep a notebook nearby, right? Nay, write down the name of the sermon name of the pastor, and just write down how many things in the sermon you're told, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, try harder, do this, you need to do this, stop doing this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. If you don't do this, you're proving you're not saved. If you're really saved, you would, would, would be doing this. And just keep a list of all the things you're told to do in a sermon. And just write down, you don't have to write down the full context, just the basic summary of what you're told to do. And then and just listen all day. Just start in the morning and go all day. Maybe you can just go from like eight in the morning to six at night. But if you can just like go from eight in the morning to say midnight and you just keep a list by the end of the, send me your list. And then, and then we'll see how much antinomian is a, antinomianism is a problem in the church. We are, we, we, we are, we're drowning in law, law, law. All the messages are law based. So, so they're like, hey, 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 see, if, if, if you think legalism is the problem, then you're going to run to the use of the law that says, hey, hey, it's to expose our sin. But we've got to get to that third use of the law, which says it's a guide. 
And I, and I'm all for the, that it's a guide. The question is, they are in, not just insinuating, they explicitly stated at the beginning of this audio that now we have the spirit, we can obey the law. Well, if we can, then we can be perfect. So yes, if you believe that everyone out there can obey the law, then of course your sermons are going to be like, hey guys, hey, do this, 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 and this. And if you don't do it, clearly you're not saved because you have the ability to do it. So we're going to excommunicate you. But then they always backtrack and go, but nobody's going to do it perfectly. I don't even know what it means. The issue isn't antinomianism. The issue is that all we get is law disguised as gospel. Hey, God did this for you, but hey, hey, you're saved by an imputed righteousness, but you prove your salvation by a practical righteousness. Well, how can a practical righteousness prove imputed righteousness? Because imputed righteousness is righteousness accredited to my account by faith. It doesn't make me righteous. It declares me to be righteous in his sight, which you, you, you revert almost right back to uh, you revert almost right back to a, a, um, a Roman Catholicism understanding of infused righteousness. Oh, it's absolutely, it's absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. All right. Let's see if we can find a good stopping point because we're over an hour. And if you're listening on Church One or Sermons 2.0, our internet connection just went a little wacky. Don't know why. Uh, the indicator turned red, but we're going to, we're going to at least try to find a, a, a suitable stopping point And then we'll finish this review later tonight or tomorrow. Right, here we go like Romans and Galatians a lot. And those are wonderful books. I've studied and written on both of those in various ways. But if those are your only tools in the toolbox, mm-hmm. you're going to basically think the only church problem is legalism. Mm-hmm. Any well, thoughts on that? I think, I think that's a good point. I think also, um, and it, honestly, it has a lot to do with just the length of books in the Bible because the typical pastor is looking for a sermon series of a certain length, which means you're only going to spend time or predominantly going to spend time in shorter books of the Bible. And you're probably not going to spend time in the Old Testament law books a whole lot because those are longer. and they. T- oh, that's such garbage. So if I don't have your view... It's because I won't work on log book. Hey, hey, I don't know you and you obviously don't know me. I will spend as long as we need in any book of the Bible. I'll spend years. I mean, years. I don't, I don't have worry about sermon series being a specific length. That's complete garbage to say that I, that anyone who rejects your view are the ones who don't understand that antinomianism is the real problem are people who won't study the law books of the Old Testament. No, I'll study the law books in the Old Testament all day. And you know what I'll see? God's law and people failing it. You know what I see? God's law and people still failing it. You know what I'll see 50 years from now, unless Christ returns? God's law and people still failing it because we can't keep the law. We never can keep the law. The law condemns us. The law tells us what we should do and we can't do it. So therefore we need Christ because he did it on our behalf. It's not because, oh, I've never studied the Old Testament. You're right. I've never studied the Old Testament books. You're right. my, My complete misunderstanding is because I've never read the Old Testament, only read it bazillions of times and how many different seminaries and Bible colleges. That's such just, I, oh, that drives me crazy. I know maybe she's not trying to infer that in the way that I'm taking it. Maybe she's not really trying to imply that, but it comes across like, well, the reason people don't get this is because they only study the short books of the New Testament and they don't really study those long law books in the Old Testament. You're, you're right. Yeah, ne- ne- never, never.
take a lot of work to get through. I actually think that a big symptom or a big contributing factor to this is our uh, ignorance or neglect of the Old Testament. Yeah, our problem is our ignorance and neglect of the Old Testament. Let's see. Ask anyone in the church what my favorite book of the Bible is. Let's see. What is it, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, it's Leviticus for crying out loud. But but you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. My, my misunderstanding of this is because I don't like those Old Testament books. They're just too difficult for me to get through. Oh, man. What kind of... That's so condescending and arrogant. You know, oh, that is just so... Oh, that just that just drives me crazy. The problem is we don't like the Old Testament. You're right. That's the whole problem. Um, we spend so much time in the New Testament, which is intending to prick our Old Testament memories at every turn. You know, the New Testament authors loved the Old Testament, and they delighted in the law, and they meditated on it. Um, but they are pointing toward a muscle memory that a lot of us just haven't developed. Or we have been told wrongly that the God of the Old Testament was thunderous and grumpy, and then the cross happens and the God of the New Testament is now welcoming and loving. But, you know, you can, if, if you do a word search in the Old Testament, you find out that God is described as compassionate over and over again in the Old Testament. He's the same God. Therefore, his law should be equally beautiful in the life of the Yahweh follower, whether you are on one side of the cross or on the other. Yeah, that law should be so beautiful because it constantly says condemned, 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 guilty, 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 guilty. That's all it screams at you 24-7. Now, I understand. I understand there's a beautiful aspect to it. I understand there's a beauty of it because it does point me and lead me to Christ. But, I mean, give me a break. Like, the, see, the reason she is describing it as beautiful is because, well, you can keep it now. You can keep it. You can actually love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You can actually meditate in God's word day and night. You can do it. But I do think a lot of this is a, is a Bible literacy issue related strictly to the length of preachable or teachable books that keeps us only in the shorter books of the Bible, and gives, which means you're going to be in the epistles a ton. See, the problem is biblical literacy. I see. So my problem, because I don't go with their view, is I'm illiterate. Wow. Thank you. And all I do is stay, all I do is stay in the, uh, the epistles. That's all I do. That's all I do. Wow. What? I, man, didn't realize my problem was biblical illiteracy. Um, and if you're in Paul's epistles, you're probably talking a lot more about justification. Uh, and so I think that's a lot of how we got here. No, I all right, we'll have to stop right there. Um, the, the Church One Sermons 2.0 app, after I gave such a great idea for the Sermons 2.0 app, after I promoted it so heavily, then it, it starts acting up on me. What, what is that? What is that? Come on. Um, where, I don't know. But I get nervous when we're in an hour and 10 minutes and the internet's doing at least one weird thing for one app because I don't want it to crash on the, on the app that's recording everything. So um, we'll have to wrap it up there. Now, we're, we're going to stop here. Oh, this is some maddening stuff. Um, we made it 16 minutes and 42 seconds into this. 16 minutes, 16, 42, law, gospel, 16, 42. We got 31 minutes to go. 
Now, it took us one hour and 10 minutes to uh, review 16 minutes of audio. You break that down, you realize we're probably going to have to do three parts on this. But we will see. All right, we're going to stop it right there. Oh, man, that is so, that is so frustrating. All right. I, this should everything we talked about should spark a lot of good conversation. I know we we had some decent numbers listening to us on the Sermons 2.0 app, but decent for that app, not decent for our other apps, but at least decent for that app. If you are still listening, I would challenge you. You may disagree with my perspective, but we have an entire series that we're and this is this message will be a part of it called Understanding Law and Gospel. Understanding Law and Gospel is the name of the series. You can find it on the Church One app. Download the Church One app, Church O-N-E, look for Theology Central, or on Sermons 2.0 app, do a search for Theology Central, look for our series, Understanding Law and Gospel, 39 messages so far, this is about to be part 40, but listen to everything we've talked about in Understanding Law and Gospel, because it's obviously drastically different than what they are promoting. What we are reviewing here is promoting something completely different, and I like you to hear the different perspective. So far, on one hand, I can agree with them. We should love God's law. We should pursue it. We want to obey it. But we cannot, and we never will, and we will fall short continually. Because if we break one point, we're guilty of all of it. And we're always breaking one point. So therefore, we're always guilty of all of it. (laughs) I, I don't know how much more clear that can be. But they're like, the law is wonderful because now we can keep it. Well, if I can keep it, then that means I can be perfect. In fact, I would have to be perfect to keep it because God's law demands, and I'll end with this, perfect, personal, exact, entire, perpetual obedience externally and internally, and we must be in obedience in our mind, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our actions, our desires, and motivations. You have never been obedient to the law because that's the kind of obedience the law demands. And you will never be obedient to it even after salvation. That's why your only hope is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, you can email me your disagreements. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. We will continue this review later this evening after my iPad charges because it's about to die. All right. All right. Thanks for listening. Wow. Some good stuff. Thanks uh, to everyone who uh, commented in the comment section. Great stuff. Good stuff. Those on the Discord channel, pick up the conversation and let it go. We just talked about a lot of important issues and we need to continue to work on them to try to figure out, because we want to figure out the truth about law and gospel and what, how, what is a proper understanding of these two absolutely critical concepts. God bless.